Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of Grace Point Church in Atlantic, Iowa. My name is Don McLean. I'm the senior pastor here at Grace Point. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can check us out at gracepointatlantic.com. And in the meantime, grab your Bible and check out this week's sermon. Well, I've been thinking about the future lately. You probably have too. It's hard not to think about the future with all the stuff that's been going on in the Middle East. Uh, Even if you're one of those people who avoids the news, and I'm sure we have a few of those, uh, even if you are one of those people, you have not been able to stay away from what happened two weeks ago in Israel. Uh, On the morning of October 7th, uh, a terrorist group called Hamas made a surprise attack on Israel. Uh, They broke broke through the barriers between Israel and a territory called the Gaza Strip. Uh, Gaza is the territory where Hamas is actually the governing authority. Uh, in that area. And over the next few hours on that Saturday morning, Hamas massacred, and that is the correct word. They massacred more than 1,400 people. Uh, some of the dead were soldiers, uh, legitimate targets, I suppose you could say, but, but the vast majority of them were, were civilians. Uh, most of those civilians were Israelis, uh, though some of them were from other countries, including 29 Americans were in among the dead. Uh, Hamas ha- also took hostages, more than 200 hostage- hostages. Uh, And at this point, it's not clear where they even are, though I did see in the news two of them were were released just yesterday. That's good news. But again, the vast majority of those hostages are uh, location unknown, suspected some of them are dead, others are still being held. Uh, In response, Israel did what we would do. They struck back. They struck back. And the last two weeks have been filled with stories and pictures and videos of missiles and bombings and casualties on both sides. Uh, And as of this morning, I checked just an hour ago to make sure I was up to date. As of this morning, we're still waiting to see just how big this war is going to get. And the thing about wars is that wars are scary. Rumors, you know, the Bible talks about wars and rumors of wars. Wars are scary because you never know how far they're going to go, how much they'll escalate, especially when nuclear weapons could be involved, as in this case. And then on top of all of that, the fact that all of this is happening, everything I just described to you, it's all happening less than 150 miles from a valley called Armageddon. That shakes us up. That makes us think, that's for sure. No wonder we're thinking about the future. But the fact is, we don't need a war, do we? to make us think about the future. We think about the future all the time. I really appreciated how you opened our service and prayer this morning, John. We think and, and worry. Not, we don't just think about it. We worry about the future. Uh, we worry about our nation. We worry about our communities. We worry about the economy. We worry about the next election. Uh, we worry about our businesses and our schools. If we have children, we worry about our children. We worry about our own health. We worry about technology and artificial intelligence and how far can it go and all this kind of stuff. Indeed, when it comes to the future, it seems there is plenty. Probably going to send you home feeling anxious, you're, you're thinking right now. When it comes to the future, there sure is an awful lot to think about and worry about. However, I am excited about today's passage. I'm excited because today's passage reminds us that we can and should trust the Lord with our future. And that is the emphasis of this middle part of Hebrews chapter 11. The important lesson in this passage is that we can and should trust the Lord with our future. Uh, We are continuing in our study through Hebrews, and uh, we are in the middle now of, of chapter 11, the famous faith chapter. Uh, We said a couple of weeks ago when we did the first part of chapter 11, we said that this chapter uh, has an agenda. The author is showing us in this chapter what it looks like to live by faith. 
And so chapter 10 ends with an admonition or an exhortation to, to live by faith. To, and, and then he's going to tell us that again in the beginning of chapter 12. But before he goes to that exhortation at the beginning of 12, he says, let me show you what this looks like. And what he does is he gives us a whole bunch of examples of real people who did what we've just been told to do. Real people, people who lived in history and are recorded in the scriptures, who lived by faith. And so that's what we have going on in this chapter. And so we have all these examples from these people. And their example can be summarized, we said a couple of weeks ago, with a single word, and that word is trust. To live by faith is to trust the Lord, even when our circumstances might look, make it look like we're crazy to do so. But that's what it is to live by faith. We trust the Lord, even sometimes in, in the face of uh, the circumstances we're facing. We looked at uh, verses 1 through 7 two Sundays ago, and so that was a shorter passage, and we, I, I tried to lay out that principle, and we talked about it in general terms, so what it looks like to trust the Lord. Now in this middle section, I want to apply this principle of trusting the Lord, I want to apply it specifically to uh, the future, so faith for the future, as we look to, to that which is to come. And th- there are present implications to everything we're talking about today, that, that's, that's not that the future, that the present is affected by it. But, but the main focus, and I think you'll see as we go through these examples, the main focus in this text is, is trusting the Lord with what is to come, trusting the Lord with our futures. And so we're going to go through verses 8 through 22. And as we walk through these, here's how I'd like to organize it. I, I want to talk with you about three concerns that we all have. I think all people have these three concerns for the future, Uh, maybe not to the same extent, but I I think these are universal concerns, and so we're going to look at these three concerns, and then with each one, where we'll spend most of our time with each, is is focusing on what it looks like to trust the Lord. So this this is the part where you and I are different. All humans experience these concerns, but here's how Christians handle them. We trust the Lord in these three areas. So uh, let's, let's get into the text and take a look at this. So concern number one, the first concern we have for the future has to do with our souls, our souls. And the concern here, I can put them all three in a frame of a, in the form of a question. The first concern is where are we going when we die? All right? So this is the one that has to do with our souls. Where are we going when we would, when we die? I would argue this is universal. This is a universal concern for human beings. Now, some people would push back and say, no, it's not. Right? Some, you know, lots of people don't believe in an afterlife. It's not a concern for everybody. I, I beg to differ. I think everybody uh, thinks about what comes next. Right? Uh, and and if, you, if you want to go back, you can study history, you can study archaeology, you can look at this. Every culture has some kind of answer to the question, what happens when human beings die? But I would argue even moderns who sometimes say they don't believe in it. Uh, are still wrestling with this in some deep, essentially human way. If you don't believe me, just, just think back to the last funeral you went to. And I know some of you are younger, don't go to a lot of funerals yet. But just think back to the last funeral you went to for a non-believer. Right? The last non-believer's funeral you went to. Even if that person showed no interest in God, no interest whatsoever, everyone is still sitting around talking about how he's in a better place now. Right? Well, at least she's at peace now. She didn't believe in peace. I don't believe in peace, but at least she's at peace now, they'll say. And I think that's not just sloppy language. That comes from a deeply ingrained, all the way back to our creation, this deeply ingrained understanding that we are eternal beings, that we're going to live, to be- live forever. And so I think there's general agreement that something happens after we die. The question is, what is it? Where do we go when we die? Well, according to the Bible, uh, the answer is, uh, if you believe in Jesus, the answer is that you, you are going to heaven 
Right? And so here's how we trust him with this first concern. We get to trust him with our heavenly home or our eternal destiny. Uh, that's what we see in, in verses 8 through 16. That's what kept Abraham going. Right? We're going to talk about kind of the promises to Abraham and how he believed those promises, and, and that's an example there to us of faith. But where it all kind of lands is that what kept him going was his belief that the Lord held his eternal destiny in his hands. Uh, let's pick up with verse 8. So uh, we'll read through some of these as we go uh, again as we go along. So verse 8, by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. I'm going to stop there for a minute, and I want to talk about promises. Uh, the Lord made uh, three promises to Abraham that are talked about here in, uh, in, in Hebrews 11 specifically. Uh, three promises, and Abraham, here's what his faith did. His faith compelled him to hold on. Right, so he trusted the Lord by trusting and holding on to these three promises that God made to him. Uh, the first promise was land. Right? The Lord made to Abraham a promise of land. You see that one in verse 9. Right? By faith, Abraham went to live in the land of promise, it says. Uh, God made that promise to Abraham way back in Genesis 12. Right, so all the way back in Genesis, verse 1, Now the Lord said to Abram, uh, this was before God changed his name to Abraham, The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And Abraham obeyed, that's mentioned here. Uh, he goes to the land the Lord shows him, tells him to go to. And then just a few verses later, same chapter, verse 7. And then, and so Abraham is there. He's in the land of Canaan, comes to be known as the promised land. It says, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your offspring, I will give this land. It's yours, he says. You go to chapter 15, chapter 17. This promise keeps getting repeated. I will give you this land. So there's promise number one. The Lord promised Abraham a physical land, and, and, and he didn't even know where it was, but he believed the Lord's promise, so he set out for it. Why? Because he trusted. Uh, by the way, this is a little bit of a parenthetical, but let me just say that that promise I just mentioned uh, is the foundation for the state of Israel, right? Especially with the stuff that's been going on. It's like, oh man, I can't not mention this. Uh, we, we don't have time this morning. I would find it interesting, but it's also not my area of expertise. But we, we don't, uh, it would be interesting to go into the history and the politics and all the stuff that's been unfolding for the last 150 years uh, there in, in that part of the world uh, to try to understand the complications and why are the Palestinians in this strip and all these different things. But here's the thing. When you boil off all of that history and all of that politics and all that stuff, when you boil it all away, what left, the core of that controversy in the Middle East, that conflict, is an ancient promise. That's the heart of it all, an ancient promise that the God of the universe made to a man named Abraham there in Genesis chapter 12. I will give you the land I will show you, and it will belong to you. This, this is what comes in Genesis 15. It will belong to you and your descendants forever. God promised. God promised. Uh, the devil hates God's promises. He hates them all, but I think he especially hates this one. And that's why so much of the violence against Israel that you see in the news and on social media and all the rest, please remember that is, is demonic. 
And they don't talk about it a lot in the news, and I'm, that's not even a complaint. I don't know how they would. I don't know how do you talk on CNN about demons and, and all that. But, but that really, you and I have got to remember, that is the basis of so much of that conflict that's going on there. God made a promise to the Jewish people, and the devil hates that promise. And so I would encourage you to remember that as you pray, even as we've been doing at the beginning of our services, you know, as you pray for Israel, as you pray for that situation in the Middle East. Uh, Ephesians 6 tells us we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual powers in heavenly places. Um, that's true with most of things going on in the world. That's what Ephesians 6 says, but it's especially true with this one. So, you know, be very practical. Don't hate the Palestinian people. And I don't know if anyone's been tempted to feel that way or talk that way, but don't hate the Palestinian people. Hate the evil that lies behind what some of them have been doing. Right? There's, there's a, this is a spiritual battle, and, and we need to, to pray accordingly. And it all goes back to this. It goes back to this promise that God made to Abraham. So that's promise number one. There's a land promise, uh, but the Lord wasn't done. That was just one. Uh, the second promise God made to Abraham is, is the promise of descendants, descendants or offspring. Uh, that one is in uh, Hebrews 11. It's, it's in verses 11 and 12. And I love the way uh, Sarah is brought in on this. So it's his wife. Uh, by faith, Sarah, Abraham's wife, uh, Sarah herself, this is verse 11 I'm reading, uh, received power to conceive even when she was past the age at which she could conceive since she considered him faithful who had promised. So clearly Abraham had relayed the promises to his wife, Sarah. She'd had, she'd had them as well. Therefore, from one man, Abraham, her husband, and him as good as dead, ouch, <laughs> were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. So Sarah, it says, considered him faithful who had promised. And this goes back to those promises in Genesis uh, that I was telling you about. The first one, the first time comes in Genesis 12, verse 2. Uh, God says, uh, so the first one is the land promise. Verse 2 is the offspring. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing, the Lord says to Abram. And then the Lord actually expands that promise even more. It's, and this passage quotes part of it, Genesis 15, verse 5. Uh, Abraham is now in the promised land. It says the Lord brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars. Count them all up if you're able. You can't, of course, but if you are able to count them, do so. That's how your offspring will be, the Lord said to Abram. And so the Lord promised uh, Abraham and Sarah together, this couple. He, he promised them descendants. And they believed him. That's, that's the part uh, Hebrews 11 emphasizes. They believed his promise. Uh, it wasn't easy. And if you've read through Genesis, you, you know they did not do so perfectly. They tried to do it, make it happen their own way sometimes. They, 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 uh, they put the promise in jeopardy with some lies that they told. Abraham and Sarah were far from perfect. But in the end, the fundamental core of their being, they trusted they trusted the Lord's promise that he would give them descendants. So he got promise of the land, the promise of the descendants. But that's, that's, those aren't the only promises that the author of Hebrews mentions, is, mentions. In fact, we haven't even gotten to the best one yet. The best one is the third one. The third promise is a home in heaven. A home in heaven. So that's uh, promise number three. You got the land, you got the, the offspring, and you got a homeland in heaven. Uh, that one we read about a few places. The first time is verse 10. I skipped it a minute ago. Now we'll read it. For he, Abram, was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. 
That's a very powerful statement when we stop and hover over it. When Abraham set foot in Canaan, he was not focused on their mud brick cities. Right? He didn't care about their cities. They had nice cities. They were nice cities there in Canaan. He was still living in tents. He wasn't coveting their cities. He was looking for a better city, we're told. He was looking for a city whose designer is God. Right? So what did he want? It's a, I say that's a powerful statement because we don't usually give Abraham credit, especially when we read through Genesis, for thinking this way. But he is very determinedly, according to Hebrews, focused on the eternal and spiritual implications of the journey he's on. He wanted the heavenly city, the eternal city, the city that God was building. That's what he was after. And and you say, well, you're making too much of of one verse. No, the author comes back to it in verse 14. Um, I'm actually going to read 13 through 16 in one chunk here because I think that actually might be the heart of this whole chapter. Uh, So let me just read it. Pay special attention to verse 14, though, because I'm going to start there. It says, these all died in faith not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they'd been thinking of that land from which they'd gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city." So verse 13 tells us who we're talking about. It says, these all, right? And, and in context, that's most immediately, it's Abraham and Sarah, and then their family. So Isaac and Jacob, their, their son and grandson, Isaac and Jacob, verse 9, they're mentioned. Uh, also Joseph, who's mentioned in verse 22. They're all part of this, these all that we're talking about. But then again, I say, I think this, this paragraph is the key to the whole chapter, or one of the keys to the whole chapter, uh, because I think they're also included in the these all, right? When we read through this chapter, we see that, that what the statement that's made there applies to all of them. These all died in faith, trusting, they got all the way to the end of their lives, still trusting, not having received the things promised. So the promise, sometimes God's promises we experience them in this life, but sometimes Hebrews is saying, sometimes it comes later, even later, right? These all died in faith, not having received the things promised. Think about Abraham. You know, Abraham was promised land. The Lord promised him land, the promised land. But when Abraham died, when Abraham died, the only land he owned in the promised land was a tomb. When he died, all he owned was a cave. He bought a cave from the, from the inhabitants of the area. He bought a cave from them so that he'd have a place to bury his wife. And then when he died a few decades later, they buried him there as well. That's all he owned. He didn't own the land. All he owned was a, was a, a plot. But he kept trusting. He kept trusting the Lord. Uh, the Lord promised Abraham descendants, as numerous as the sand on the seashore. But when Abraham died, all he had was a couple of grandsons. Jacob and Esau were about 15 when, uh, when Abraham died. Not exactly the sand on the, sea, on the seashore, is it? Someday, it is now, but it wasn't then. And, but he kept going, right? He kept going. He kept believing and trusting the Lord's promise. That's, that's faith. That, that's faith. It's, it's encapsulated for us there. <clears throat> and and we, what the author has done is he set us up for the third promise because that's the real one, right? That's the one that kept Abraham going and that's the one that keeps us going, right? The third promise is the heavenly home. Abraham couldn't see that one either. He couldn't see the better country, verse 16 talks about. He, he, he hadn't reached the homeland that verse 14 says he was trekking toward, but he kept trekking. He kept pressing on because he trusted. He trusted the Lord with his future. 
And so the challenge for us in this first section is to be like Abraham, right? As we talk about this first point, this is one of those sermons where my first point is is twice as long as all the other points. Uh, but, but in this first one, in this first section, as we talk about Abraham, the challenge here is for you and me to do the same thing, to trust the Lord as we walk in our present, to trust the Lord with our future, right? But to believe that, that heavenly country, to believe that that heavenly country he's bringing us to is better. Now, before I move on from that point, I, I just want to take a couple of more minutes on this one, just, just to point out that this principle of trusting the Lord with our our heavenly home, with our eternal destiny, it is intensely practical. It is intensely practical for how we live the present. Sometimes we get accused of, you know, you've heard the old saying, you know, so earthly mind, so heavenly minded, she's no earthly good, or he's no earthly good. Um, I don't like that that phrase because it's not not accurate to what the scripture commends us to do. Uh, This is intensely practical in terms of how we live the present. And the reason I can say that is that one of the big things this biblical principle does is it keeps us from getting overly attached to the things of this world, right? It keeps all of this stuff in in perspective. They're gifts to be enjoyed, but they're not what we give our lives to, right? It it keeps them in perspective. You you catch that uh, in verse 13 when it says they they acknowledged they were strangers and exiles on the earth. That's why they were okay living in tents, it says. You know, don't, don't think you're a little backyard tent. I mean, they were like homes, but still they were impermanent is the idea. Why? Because they knew that this wasn't their destination. Right? That, and that kept it in perspective. Think about the last time you went someplace on an airplane. Or, or maybe, maybe you don't like to fly, but you know someone who does. Right? So think of you, yourself or someone else who's, who's uh, gone on a, on, a, on a trip that required flying somewhere. That journey started in an airport, right? Even if it was here in Atlantic, you know, if you're crop dusting or something. But, you know, commercial journeys, they always have to start in an airport. And the thing about an airport is you don't settle down, right? You don't settle down and make yourself at the home, at the airport. In fact, your goal when you go to the airport is to spend as little time in the airport as possible, right? I mean, we get frustrated. That's why we get frustrated. You know, we're there in the airport and they're like, your flight's two hours late. We're not like, yay! (laughs) No, I've got to sit here in the airport for another two hours. I don't want that to happen. Why do we feel that way? We feel that way because airports are uncomfortable, right? Because they're not supposed to be a place where you stay. The chairs are hard. They're always too close together. Uh, there's not enough outlets for all your gadgets. They've always got CNN playing on the screens. I don't know why, you know, and, and, they, and they blast it at you, you know, and you get hungry and you're like, all right, I'll take an $8 bag of potato chips. And it's, it's, it's just terrible, right? It's, it's, it's not fun. It's not terrible. It's too strong, but it's not fun. It's not fun to spend a lot of time in an airport. But that's not the point of airports. That's not the point, right? The point is not to settle down and make yourself at home. The point is to get yourself along, to get you ready for the place you're going. Sooner or later, the call comes. It's time to board. You get on. You're going to get on that plane, and you're going to go to where you actually want to go. Maybe it's a vacation. Maybe it's old friends you're going to see, your family. The point is the airport isn't the destination. It's just the pass-through. It's the place you go to to get ready for the destination. And I think Hebrews 11, one of the messages is is that it's telling us that's what this life is like. As you think in an ultimately kind of thinking sort of a way, the point is not to settle down and make ourselves at home. The point is to get ourselves ready for 
the destination for the place we're really going. That's why I say this is so intensely practical. This is not saying, oh, you know, just check out. Oh, you're saved. That's great. Now you just sit around and wait for heaven, right? Just wait, you know, just kill some time until Jesus takes you home. No, that is not the scripture's mindset. God, what what do they tell, what does God tell us in the scriptures? You know, Jesus says, use this life to store up treasures, right? It's an active waiting. It's not a passive waiting. Store up treasures in heaven, Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the, sermon on the Mount. Right? Use this life, the Scripture tells us, to, to, to serve and to care and to bless and to promote God's kingdom and to spread the gospel and to love people, to be the hands and feet of Jesus, all those things we talk about, that, that active waiting. So, yes, trust Him. Trust Him with the future by trusting Him with your heavenly home. So that's concern number one. Let's move on to the next one. Concern number two that we have uh, about the future, very specifically, uh, has to do with our physical bodies. Our bodies. And, and the concern here, I'd summarize it this way. Here the concern is, what will happen to them? What happens to our bodies when we die or after we die? Now, at first, you again, you might scratch your head and say, well, is that really a concern that people have? I mean, is it really a concern? I mean, who cares? <laughs> who cares? Especially if you think about what I just said. Right? If you're a Christian and you say, well, we have the promise of heaven, who cares what happens to this clunky old thing? You know, who cares? But I would, again, I would press back on that, and I would say we care very much, and it goes all the way back to how we were made. God created human beings as embodied creatures. He made us that way. Right? He didn't create Adam and Eve as spirits and then be like, mm, let's see, how are they going to get around? Here's a body. No, he, he made them as bodies with spirits, as spirits with bodies, however you want to arrange the prepositions. We are embodied creations from the very beginning, Uh, which means our bodies end up being very important to us. That's why we we take care of them, right? You were not being selfish if you got breakfast this morning. I know not everybody's a breakfast person, but if you miss breakfast, you'll go home and have lunch. That's not selfish. You're just taking care of what God has, has given you. You're taking care of your body. Uh, it's also, I, I, I think, a little ph- philosophical here, but I, I think this is why so many of us have a hard time even imagining a disembodied existence. I, I think it's actually hard for us to do. I was wondering, you know, if you think about Halloween, which is kind of this yucky holiday to, to most of us, but, but I think one of the fascinations for it of people is, is spirits, this idea that there are spirits, you know, that there are ghosts. Why does that fascinate us? Because we can't quite imagine it because we're embodied, right? We, 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 are, we exist this way, and it's hard to imagine another kind of existence. I'll give you another example of why I say this is an issue. Um, it, it, have you ever heard of um, phantom limb syndrome? A little thing called phantom limb syndrome. This is a condition where uh, someone will experience physical sensations, oftentimes it's pain, in a limb that is no longer there. Right? And so maybe you know, you've been in an awful accident, or you were in war, or, or there was an amputation. For whatever reason, you, you don't, you, you've lost a leg, or you've lost an arm. And I, from what I was reading this week, in about 80% of cases, for at least a little while, the person will have the sensation that that limb is still there. Their brain, their heart, their whatever you want to call it, says, oh, it's still there, even though it's not there anymore. And, and, and I, I, I suspect, I think that to me is kind of a picture of what like I say, a little philosophical here. You can throw this out if you think I'm nuts. But uh, I wonder if something similar doesn't happen when we die, only more so. If, because then what happens is that essence of us, our soul, we're not just missing a limb. Now we're missing the whole thing. Right? What happens when we die? Our spirit lives on, but our body is, is laid to rest. It is, it, it's gone for a time. 
right? And we weren't made to have that happen. That's the, the agony of, that's introduced all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 when, when death is introduced into the world because of Adam and Eve's sin. All of which is to say, a uh, little longer on my setup here for this point, but my, my point is that I would argue we are concerned at a very visceral kind of deep level. We are concerned about what happens to our bodies. We care about them very, very much. And that's why the doctrine of the physical resurrection is such good news. It really is. It, what will happen to our bodies? You know what? You can trust Jesus with your physical resurrection. We can trust him for the physical resurrection. And to our text, that's what Abraham did, right? That's what we see in verses 17 through 19. Now, in, in some ways, 17 through 19 is just another example of how he just kept trusting the Lord in this really uh, intentional and deliberate way, even against the face of the circumstances. But very specifically, 17 through 19 tell us that he specifically believed, and I think he's the first person in Scripture to believe this, uh, he believed, or, or to, that we're told believed it, he believed that God could even raise the dead, if that's what it took for God to carry out his plan. Wonderful pre, pre uh, look ahead to what God will do through Jesus. But let's read those verses, 17 through 19. It says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son. He was in the act. He was about to do it. Of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So just to refresh you on the story, uh, God kept his promise to Abraham and Sarah that they would have a son. The Lord gave them a, a boy. They named him Isaac. When Isaac was still young, usually we kind of put him kind of teenager years, when he was still young, the Lord tested Abraham's faith, and he appeared to Abraham and told him to sacrifice Isaac, take his life, sacrifice him as a burnt offering. And Abraham obeyed. If you haven't read it lately, go read it. It's Genesis chapter 22. Uh, the Lord said, go to such and such a place. Abraham did. He went to such and such a place. He brought Isaac. Uh, he brought wood for a fire, but he did not bring an animal. The, the standard practice would be to bring an animal to sacrifice, and he didn't. All he brought was Isaac. And so he obeyed. He did what the Lord told him to do. At that last moment, it's, I mean, he was going to go through with it, we read. It's very clear in Genesis. Abraham was going to go through with it. The Lord stops him. Uh, the Lord provides a ram in the thicket. The angel stops Abram's hand. And, 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 and so the Lord tested Abraham's faith to see how, how he trusted him. Abraham passed the test. Uh, God also gave us a beautiful picture of what he was going to do for us. There's a rich Christology in Genesis 22. Uh, God's, God's basically telling the whole human race to all who will listen. He's saying, you don't have to sacrifice your sons and daughters because I will sacrifice my son. All right? And so there's this beautiful picture of what God's going to do for us there in Genesis 22. But the author of Hebrews actually doesn't focus on any of that. What he points to is, is this new thing. Right, so he talks about Abraham's faith. He was willing to even offer that which he cared about most, his son. Right? He was willing to offer his son to the Lord because he trusted the Lord. But then the, the author tells us something we're actually not told in Genesis 22, and it's that Abraham did this because he believed God would raise Isaac from the dead. He believed in the physical resurrection. Right? If, if that's what it's going to take for God to keep his promise to me, then that's what I'm going to believe. Verse 19, he considered that God was able even to raise Isaac from the dead. That's faith. Abraham has these two things that he knows. 
right? He knows that God said he would have descendants that came very specifically through Isaac. He also knows that God told him to offer Isaac, right? He didn't hear like voices. There wasn't any uncertainty. Sometimes he's accused of things, but that's a misreading of scripture. He knows this is what God has told him to do. And so what does he deduce? He deduces, well, if, if Isaac dies, God will raise him again. God will bring him back. And so he trusted the Lord. In the, in, the, in the phraseology I'm using here, he trusted the Lord with the future of Isaac's body. He trusted the Lord. That is a, what I've just given you is a distinctly Christian application of the Abraham and Isaac story because we hold fast to the same thing. And I think the author of Hebrews, a distinctly Christian book, uh, is, is pointing us to think this way. He says, we believe the same thing about our own bodies. We believe that on the last day, God will raise us up, just like he did figuratively for Isaac, he reminds us, just like he did for real with Jesus, and just like he will for all of us on that last day. And so we will not live forever. Uh, as, and like I said at the beginning, not everybody kind of experiences these, these three concerns to the same degree. But if you've ever kind of wondered, I don't want to be a ghost. I don't want to just float around on clouds. Uh, well, don't worry, you won't be. Instead, you will have an eternal, glorified, physical body made perfect forever by God himself. That's good news. It's good news for the far future as we think way out to what's going to happen. You know, you talk about your eschatology and final things and all that. It's good news for the far future. But you know, I was thinking, it's good news for the near future too. It's good news for right now, uh, especially, and this, again, this will help some and others will not think it's so important, but I think this doctrine right here helps us with, uh, with aging, it helps us with, with aging. And those of you who are younger, just bear with me for a moment. Uh, uh, aging is hard, right? Aging is hard. It's like dying in slow motion, right? It, it, our, our strength wanes a little bit at a time. Our capacities fail. We can't do things we used to do. We have to strain, you know, like, it's amazing how loud that TV has to be now just to hear the, the thing. Um, it, it, things that used to work don't work as well as they used to work. Um, I had an eye exam uh, about a month ago and I was way overdue. I let it go probably two years longer than I was supposed to. And I kind of forgot about it. So I went in, I got my eyes checked and, and you know, the doctor said, uh, he's a good guy. He said, I needed a stronger prescription. Prescription. So I was like, okay, a little stronger prescription. I, I have to say, it's wonderful to see you all in the back. You'd, you'd, you'd gotten blurry. I was worried about you, but <laughs> turns out it was just me. So, so he fixed that up, but that's fine. But he also told me during this exam, you know, that really invasive part where they poke you and, and look inside. He said, well, you, you have the beginnings of cataracts, he said. I was like, oh my gosh, no. I'm just like, oh no, you know, do, do I need surgery? You know, what, what's going on? Should I be worried? He's like, no. He was totally nonchalant. He's like, yeah, it's just part of aging. You're, you're right where a man your age should be, he said. <laughs> it doesn't sound fine to me, but, but that's what he said. And, and that's the thing, you know, and again, that's kind of, you know, bad news. Uh, although again, he's just like, oh, just get used to it. But, but, but this doctrine is good news as we look at those kinds of things that we struggle with at, at all our various ages along the way. Uh, this body that we become so accustomed to and so dependent on, and yet, dare I even say so fond of, uh, it has a future. Uh, the, the insults of aging that we experience and the limitations of, of a physical existence are not the final word. Uh, the Lord has a better future. He has a better future in store for us as far as that part goes. So that's number two. Uh, finally, the third future concern that we have has to do with, uh, I'm going to say, with what we leave behind. 
It, that's another concern we have for the future, what we leave behind. And, and the, the question here I want to ask is, who will take care of things when we're gone? Who will take care of things when we're gone? And this passage answers that question as well. And it's the same answer we've looked at with the first two. We can trust the Lord with our souls. We can trust the Lord with our bodies. And we can trust the Lord with our physical legacy. We can trust him with our earthly legacy is what I want to say. We can trust him with our earthly legacy. God will take care of things after we're gone. I think that's one of the big things we see in verses 20 and 20, 21 and 22. And again, these are offered to us as general promises or general examples of faith and trust. But here, it seems to me, with each of these three men we read about in verses 20 through 22, they were having to leave their legacy to God. Uh, let me read them. Verse 20. By faith, Isaac, the son of Abraham and Sarah, invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. And by faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. And by faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave direction concerning his bones. So a few years after the Mount Moriah incident, uh, Isaac married Rebekah. Uh, and he, they had two sons. He and his wife, Rebecca, had two sons. Their sons' names were Jacob and Esau. Both sons had lots of flaws. You can read about them in Genesis. They made lots of mistakes. But the Lord blessed them both. He actually blessed both sons. Uh, the promise to Abraham of descendants in the land, that passed specifically to Jacob. And the Lord changes Jacob's name. He becomes Israel, and the father of the nation of Israel. But the Lord blessed Esau too, and he messed up in some big ways. We'll look at one of them in chapter 12. We'll come back to Esau actually in chapter 12. But, but the Lord also blessed Esau, and that's the language that's used in Genesis. God made him a great nation too. But none of that happened while Isaac was alive. Again, Isaac lived to see grandchildren. We, if, I line up, if I've done the dating right when I line up the, the men... But neither of those sons became the great nations during Isaac's lifetime that he saw. But verse 20 says he, he blessed them anyway. He, he, he laid hands on both of them and he conferred a blessing on both of them, even though he didn't see it. So what do you see Isaac doing? What is Isaac doing? Isaac is taking promises. He doesn't see the fruition of the promises, but he, he trusts them to the Lord. He says the Lord's going to take care of it. And by faith, he blessed his two sons, even though he didn't see any of the outcome of the blessing yet. You get the same thing with Jacob, verse 21. So son of Isaac, grandson of Abraham. Uh, Jacob had a long and colorful life. It's all told about in Genesis. You can read about it really in the second half of, of the book there. Uh, but when Jacob gets to the end, he's, the very, he's a very old man. When he was dying, it says, so you can see how the text lays the emphasis on the end of his life. He was dying. What did he do? He blessed each of the sons of Joseph which actually surprised you. In fact, I spent about a day misreading that this week when I was studying this passage. I kept thinking it said, um, I kept thinking it was one of his 12 sons. It was, it was one of the sons. But he blessed the sons of Joseph. That is his grandsons. So if you remember from Genesis, he also blessed his sons. So Jacob had 12 sons. They had become the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, he blesses them. And you can read all about it in Genesis 48. But that's not the one off the Hebrews focuses on. Hebrews actually focuses on this unique incident where he also blessed two of his grandsons, the two sons of Joseph, who were one, was one of his 12 sons. 
And I was thinking, why? You know, I poked around on some resources, but the question we should ask is, what's special about Joseph's sons? What's those two grandsons? What's special about them? Why not bless the two sons of Judah or the sons of, um, you know, one of the other ones? I always forget the names. Levi or one of the others. What's special about those two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh? What's special about Jacob's grandsons. And I was thinking about it. I wonder, you can chew this, chew on this one yourself. I wonder if it wasn't because they were Egyptian. They were Egyptian. Their mother was an Egyptian, right? So Joseph was an Israelite, but their mother was an Egyptian. The others were all from, from the promised land, the other moms and, and so on. And so you can imagine where, if, put yourself in Jacob's position. You've been living now for a bunch of years in Egypt, and you see these two grandsons. Those two grandsons are a potential threat. They really are. They're a potential threat to, to the blessing that God has promised on the 12 sons of Israel. And what does Jacob do? He's not threatened. He trusts his legacy to the Lord. He puts his hands on the two sons, on Ephraim and Manasseh, and he brings them in. He actually wraps them into the blessing, and they become, each of them becomes one of the tribes of Israel. And so instead of being threatened by the future and what could happen, he, he, he embraces it. He trusts God. He trusts God with his legacy. And the, the general principle is true, even if you don't like my Egyptian connection. And then it comes back to Joseph. Joseph's is easier. Joseph, you get the same thing with Joseph. Again, at the end of his life, uh, he also very deliberately, there in that verse 22, puts the future in God's hands. Um, it says he made mention of the exodus of the Israelites. Uh, and the idea there seems to be, I think the idea is that Joseph knew, I'll use a New Testament word, prophetically. <laughs> he knew prophetically what was going to happen in the future. Because when Joseph died, things were fine. I mean, Joseph was still one of the leaders of, of Egypt. Things were fine when Joseph died. But he could see somehow down the road, things were going to go sideways for Israel. And he didn't worry about it. Right? He wasn't anxious about it. Instead, what does he do? He trusts the Lord with the future by leaving these instructions, it tells us, right? He gave instructions for what to do with his body. They're going to bury me in Egypt for now because that's what Egyptians do. They're going to, you know, mummify me. Joseph was probably mummified. They're going to, but, but when God brings us back, not if, but when God brings us back to the promised land, bring my bones too. That's what verse 22 is talking about. And, and, and that's what happens in the, in the Exodus. We're specifically told in the book of Exodus that they brought out Joseph's bones some 400 years later. So all three of those men, what's the point of 20, 21, 22? The point is that all three of those men trusted the Lord to take care of the future when they were gone. They left the future in his hands. I got to ask the obvious question before I move to close. How about you? How about you? How about me? Is there, is there some part of your own earthly legacy that, that you need to entrust to the Lord? For some in our setting, it might be a family farm or a, or a business that you've worked decades to build up and, and you, know, you don't know what's going to happen to it. When, when you can't do it anymore, you don't know. No, maybe, maybe that's how you would answer that question. Or, or maybe it's uh, something less tangible. Maybe it's certain values, family values that you've tried to pass on to your children, but some of them anyway aren't living them out. Or maybe it's more specific, you know, it, it's, it's your faith very specifically. You don't care what they do and where they go, but you just want them to follow Jesus. You've been saying that since they were in utero, and, and now here they are and they're not following one or two or more or whatever are not following Jesus. Not at this point anyway. Maybe that's how you would answer that question. It feels to you in some way like your legacy is in jeopardy. And the question is, what are we going to do about that? What do we do uh, with our legacy? And the answer, I think by faith, is that we leave it to him. 
we leave it to him. We, we do what Isaac and Jacob and Joseph did. We trust the Lord to take care of things when we're gone. As you think back at the people we've looked at so far in Hebrews 11, we're only halfway through the chapter. Uh, in fact, what I'm about to say is even more true of the ones who are coming. But as you think about just the ones we've looked at so far, one of the things that stands out is they had so many troubles. They really did. If you read through Genesis, these people had so many troubles. They faced infertility. They had ongoing family conflicts, right? These were not all one big happy families. All kinds of conflict in these families. There was deception and lying. There was bad choices. There was famine. They had economic struggle. They basically become refugees at one point. Broken relationships, bitterness, jealousy, pride, all this ugly stuff. It was a mess. These folks we've read about who lived by faith had lots of problems just like we do. But they got the most important thing right. Despite all their troubles and hardships, they trusted the Lord. They lived by faith and trusted him with their future, which is what we need to do as we live out our present. We trust him with the future. Uh, some of you will recognize uh, the name Corey Ten Boom. Corey Ten Boom. If you don't know who she is, look her up. Uh, she's an amazing, she was, she's, died, she's dead now. She was an amazing woman with an even a more amazing testimony. Uh, she wrote a book near the end of her life. But like I say, look her up. Corrie Ten Boom, T-E-N-B-O-O-M, two, two words. She was Dutch. Uh, near the end of her life, she wrote a book. This is in the 70s or 80s. It was called uh, Christ the Victor, or Christ is Victor. And she gave some great advice, short little thing. Here's what she said in that book. She said, when a train goes through a tunnel and it gets dark, you don't throw away the ticket and jump off. You sit still and trust the engineer. I really like that. When a train goes through a tunnel and it gets dark, you don't throw away the ticket and jump off. You sit still and you trust the engineer. That's a good word for all of us. Uh, no matter what tunnel you're going through right now, and some of you are going through some pretty dark tunnels, but no matter what tunnel you're going through, leave it to the Lord. Trust Jesus with your future.